Flip the System Australia is a book by educators for educators. Education systems are complex, and this book tackles the questions, what matters and what should matter in education? Today, we'll talk with one of the book's co-editors about these very questions. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that you can join Diane and I on a teacher adventure to Kenya in June of 2020 by visiting bookbagtours.com. We're going to be visiting some incredible schools, learning from some of the most innovative teachers in Kenya. There's going to be a teacher conference. We're going on safari. It is going to be an absolutely incredible two weeks. If you'd like to join us, secure your spot as quickly as possible. Cameron Patterson is a high school history teacher and is responsible for the strategic leadership of learning and teaching, innovation, and promoting excellence in teaching practice at Shore School in Sydney. He is on the faculty at Harvard's annual Project Zero Classroom Institute, and he is a course co-instructor for Harvard's Creating Cultures of Thinking online course. Cameron is also the co-editor of Flip the System Australia, What Matters in Education. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be here. Why don't you start by telling us what does it mean to flip the system? Well, firstly, I'll tell you what flip the system isn't. A lot of people, when they come across the expression flip the system, think that it's something to do with flipped learning. And that's not the case. This is nothing to do with flipping your classroom or presenting via technology. Flip the system is an expression that uh, originated with Yelma Evers in the Netherlands in around about 2015. And the idea is that it's about teacher agency. It's about professionalism. It's about democratizing the education system. So flipping the system is about inverting the hierarchy taking the power away from politicians and bureaucrats and extending power more towards the teachers, particularly teachers who are on a full-time classroom load who are in the classroom on a daily basis. Having those teachers involved in decision-making, in politics, uh, in bureaucracy, in policy, meeting the current decision-makers at the table to join them in those decisions. This is something that's been very popular in conversations of education around the globe, this idea of teacher leadership and giving teacher agency back to, the, or maybe even for the first time, back to the teacher. So tell me what elements or characteristics do you notice where this flipped system is working well? We're talking about a movement. And the movement, as I said, originated in the Netherlands in 2015. If you get a chance to Google Flip the System and TEDx, have a look at Yoma's TEDx talk about Flip the System, because that's really where it originated. So the, the first book, Flip the System, emerged in the Netherlands in 2015. There was a follow-up in the UK a couple of years ago. There's been a follow-up in Sweden. Uh, we're another follow-up in terms of Flip the System. We're Flip the System Australia. So it's beginning to sort of snowball around the world. 
and it's about reclaiming education for the teaching profession. So I really like the use of the word reclaiming. Uh, you just mentioned in your, in your question then that is this something that's occurring for teachers for the first time? I don't think it is. I think teachers have had far more power and professionalism in the past than we as a profession do now. Uh, it's almost surreptitiously gradually been taken away from us without us realising. Um, I talk a lot about the medical profession. The medical profession have the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm. I think we're very confused in education about what our ethics actually are, uh, where the bottom line is, what we stand for. Um, so just think in terms of standardised testing. And that ties in as well to the role of academics and researchers who are very, very clear about their academic freedom. They, they draw a line in the, in the sand in terms of where they're prepared, what they're prepared to stand for. And academic freedom is a huge issue for uh, people that work in universities. In schools, we've lost that. We've completely lost it. I like using the term curriculum disobedience because we don't at any stage really demonstrate sufficient curriculum disobedience. We don't at, at any stage say, look, I don't think that's appropriate. I'm not going to teach that. We don't stand up for ourselves. We're very much falling around the world into a trap of doing as we're told, and it's not healthy. One of the central themes in each of the Flip the Systems books has been collective autonomy. That's a term that I think most teachers are not familiar with. We're, we're familiar with agency and autonomy on an individual level. What's the difference between the autonomy that most teachers think about and collective autonomy? I think when we think of the word autonomy first up, we think of largely being left alone. And teachers traditionally, particularly over the last 40 or 50 years, have very much fallen back on the survival mechanism of coping within their own classrooms. And teaching has become an independent profession. Um, I, I've got to catch myself there because I think we're probably far more collaborative as a profession than we realise sometimes. Um, but Dan Lordy's work in America in the, in the 1970s, he wrote a book called Teacher. Uh, and he spoke a lot about the problems that we have as a profession, uh, falling back into cookie-cutter classrooms, um, teaching as we were taught, and literally remaining independent in those little rooms during the school day. And teaching, uh, he will, will say, is one of the few professions where an adult can sometimes spend the entire day not communicating with another adult. They're only communicating quite often with, uh, with the students that they're teaching. Now... Our point in terms of collaborative expertise and collaborative autonomy is that that's not a healthy situation. The collaboration we would like to see is collaboration where we're extending and building lateral power within schools rather than extending and building hierarchical power within schools. So we're becoming more responsible to each other as professionals. We're opening our classroom doors. We're sharing teaching ideas. We're willing to expose our weaknesses to each other and ask for assistance and help. And that's one of the key indicators of a learning organisation is the, the extent to which people within the, the organisation are willing to ask for help and willing to provide uh, others in the building with help. So in terms of collaborative expertise, we use the word collaborative autonomy. I've shifted it there to collaborative expertise. Um, so there, there are overlaps there, but we believe that teachers have an enormous amount of expertise. Quite often it's tacit expertise. It's, you think when you're standing in a classroom, the number of things that teachers do on a, a, a momentary basis in terms of where they stand, what they're looking at, um, the decision to shift or um, tack based on a student question. And quite often we don't actually know 
uh, or are not able to articulate exactly what we're doing or why we're doing it. But it's, it's on the basis of what's happening is with such deep expertise that sometimes we overlook our own expertise. Um, and this collective autonomy, when we have independence from the top-down bureaucrats and more independence from the top-down bureaucratic authority, but less independence from each other, I suppose. Uh, the idea that we're building those networks and the collaborative ability for us to actually support each other on a day-to-day -day basis. I've read in the past where research has said that teachers who are connected with others have a less tendency for burnout. Have you seen similar reaction? Well, I'm going to say yes, but I'm, I'm not in touch with the research around that particular question. I know Yoma talks increasingly about the importance of teachers being global activists and teachers building a, a networked profession so that we're actually communicating with each other across the globe. And I think that's one of the things that the Flip the System movement does really, really effectively is that this is literally just a, a grassroots movement. It's a, it's, a, it's a catchphrase. And people find within the movement what they need to find within the movement. But what it's doing brilliantly is connecting people around the world uh, who have similar sorts of dilemmas and questions. And that's a big issue for us at the moment is how do we, in the 21st century, connect professional organisations around the world who are, we're all sharing the same sorts of issues. Is it a role for the unions, an organisation like Education International? Because at the moment, there's a bit of a void in terms of how we organise, how we socially and collectively organise as a profession around the world to push back against, for example, big data and the technology companies uh, and the control that huge companies like Pearson or the World Bank or whoever else um, might be exerting on education, particularly in Africa, which is a real concern. And once we become aware of these international issues that are emerging, it's only through collective organization that we're going to be able as a profession to do anything about it. I've read all of the Flip the Systems books so far, uh, including Flip the System Australia. And my favorite chapter in your book is the one where Andy Hargraves is talking about uh, teacher wellness. Do you have a favorite chapter in, in your book? I get asked that question a fair bit. And if I'm being completely honest here, no, I don't. Um, in terms of my favorite chapter in the book, it actually changes. It changes regularly. Uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here because one of the things we were trying to do in our book, which was a little bit different from the previous books, is that we were very much trying to elevate and emphasize teacher voice. And I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout way here because we had lots and lots of problems trying to elevate teacher voice. We firstly had difficulty identifying who we thought would be appropriate from around a large country like Australia, uh, across various education systems, who we thought would be appropriate to actually write for the book. And then one of the disappointments had is that a fair number of the people that we approached to write, I'm talking about classroom practitioners declined the invitation. Now, some people declined the invitation because they were too busy, which again is you know, a standard response for extremely busy professionals, people in this profession. Uh, other people declined the invitation because they felt their writing wasn't sufficiently good enough to write for a book uh, that would have this sort of audience. And while it's obviously disappointing to hear that, I understand that entirely as a response. Um, that teachers are concerned about their, their voice, their ability to voice their ideas. Um, it's, it, it's not just in writing, actually. Quite often, you know, if you turn the TV on in the afternoon here and you come onto the 
the five o'clock news in the afternoon and they're discussing education as a panel discussing education. You won't see a teacher on that panel ever in terms of media representation. They're probably the worst in terms of the representation of professional teachers and professionals. But you don't see teachers in those education discussions. And usually it's because they, we haven't been invited. But quite often as well, there's an element of teachers not being prepared to put themselves on that stage because we aren't willing to reduce the complexity of what we do in the classroom to a soundbite that will be broadcast on the news media in 10 seconds. Because we understand the difficulties in their complexities in terms of what we do, that being able to put that into a, a piece of political spin that works really quickly across a variety of perspectives quite often isn't possible. So that's a second challenge we had. But a third challenge we had as well in terms of attracting teachers was that there's a fair amount of concern from teachers that I can't write what I really think because my principal won't like it or because the bureaucrats or the politicians or the higher ups somewhere won't like what it is that I feel that I should write about. So there are three concerns we had about how we could get teachers writing. We did get a fair few teachers. We were particularly looking for teachers on full-time teaching loads to write. But interestingly, as we went about that process, the whole concept of flipping the system sort of emerged itself, just as we were looking to, to try and work out who we could get to write. Um, because teachers are hesitant to write and hesitant to put their views forth, and that was sort of the point of the book. So we clashed against our own ideas there, which was a really interesting uh, position to be in. But to return to your question, my favourite chapter changes pretty much on a weekly or monthly basis. We have a lot of international experts, experts that have written. We've got Patsy Solberg, as you mentioned, we've got Andrew Har Andy Hargraves, Gert Biesta and others. We wanted to give a global perspective from outside in terms of what was happening in Australia, as well as the perspective from inside Australia. And initially when people read the book, quite often they're drawn to those big experts, the views which are very eloquently put about equity, about wellness and collaborative uh, autonomy, and about those sorts of big ideas. But the more I play with the ideas in the book, the more I'm drawn to the individual, daily, fresh, powerful ideas of teachers. So I love Yazodai Selva Bakuran's work on um, teaching outside of expert areas. I love Thomas Lasik from Perth, his work on working with really difficult students in maker spaces and his eloquent writing, which is just beautiful. Uh, I love Ryan Gill and Carla Galliano's chapter on how they are working with teachers in their own small school to build cultures of thinking uh, and small, uh, small scale groups of professionals working together on issues that matter to them. So I love the voice of the teachers that, that are raw and that come out re in a really genuine manner. I'd like to take a second to tell you about our sponsor, GoToScience. GoToScience is a pre-K through second grade tool that allows students to learn all aspects of the curriculum through scientific inquiry. Each month, we give away a free one-year subscription to GoToScience. To win this month, tag us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ed4betterworld. And share your favorite quote or idea that you learned from one of our shows. It's that easy. Good luck. I'd also like to remind you that Diane and I are both available to work with your teachers or to speak at your conference. To send us an inquiry, visit the Education for a Better World podcast website at ed4betterworld.com. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Cameron. 
what are some questions you believe teachers should be asking of themselves, perhaps reflectively or even with colleagues, to help them move towards more agency or at least to have a voice in their communities? Well, I can think of lots of ways of responding to that, Diane. Early on in the book, Deb, who is one of the co-editors, used the word identity. And I think identity is a really powerful word for us to consider. Because when we think about the word identity, quite often as teachers, we think about our professional identity. Uh, but one of the things I've become aware of through this process is just how much each of our personal identities affects our professional identity and how we all at any given time have multiple identities. And I think what schools are responsible for is helping our students make sense of their multiple identities uh, and how they can fit those identities together in a, in a safe place in a, in a a place that works for everybody. So I think considering how our various identities come together differently for each of us is a really interesting place for us to start questioning. Um, social justice would be a second area, which is the, the middle section of our book is huge on social justice. In Australia, uh, much of that has to do with the treatment around our Indigenous population. Uh, where particularly, we continually have this habit of dismissing Indigenous voices. And one of our authors, actually, Kevin Lowe, uh, who wrote a chapter for us on Indigenous education, when he submitted his chapter, he said, look, can you please make sure that this chapter doesn't go where most Indigenous chapters go, which is at the end of the book. And we had to think as editors long and hard about that because it was a very confronting challenge for us. Um, so in the end, we've put, we put those right in the middle of the book. We thought that was the best place for them with social justice. But this perpetuation of Indigenous voices as being somehow inferior was something that we had to wrestle with as well. And Kevin talks about the cultural interface, um, the place where new, new knowledge can be constructed between Indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge. I think that's a really interesting place to be questioning at the moment, how we can create as a profession new knowledge between different viewpoints um, and how we can value, value and listen to voices that have to this point been silenced or marginalised. So the first two places I would respond to your question would be firstly to look at identity, second to look at issues of social justice and marginalisation of voices that have been silenced. But I'm also going to jump to a point that Yola Evers talks a lot about now, and that's the idea of the fact that democracy around the world is clearly facing a, a performance crisis um, in terms of rising authoritarianism, whatever, wherever we look, whether it's um, the use of social media, inequity, globalisation, tearing at the seams of political st uh, stability, It'd be wrong for us to assume that, I think, as a history teacher, I can say it'd be wrong for us to assume that democracy is necessarily anything more than a historical blip, being perhaps for a couple of hundred years. We've got enormous threats to democracy in Australia. We're in the middle of the final couple of weeks for a federal election. And we've got challenges in terms of hacking, um, Chinese soft power, um, declining press freedom, all sorts of issues around our perceptions of race and identity as a country. And democracy clearly relies on very active work. And this is a point that I came to in my understanding of the system in that I think democracy in the end is about how we teach. Uh, there's a clear link between democracy as a political practice and how we are, how we come to be as teachers in the classroom. I think flipping the system means very much trusting and listening people within the system. It's about empowering teachers where Privileged few teachers don't speak for everybody else, and we don't speak for those who are pushed to the margins. <clears throat> Ultimately, I think there's, this is the, probably the phrase that's annoyed most people in the book, but I, in the closing 
uh, chapter, the closing conclusion, the three editors co-wrote that together. And it's where we had the most fun. But we argued that we believe that education is a political act. And that phrase has got some people's backs up. Uh, we don't run away from that. We think it's about professional honour. It's about organising ourselves. Uh, and I think as the, the whole idea behind Flip the System stands for, we would say that all teachers are activists, whether we like it or not. And Flip the System is a call to resistance. But it's not a call to resistance in terms of a negative spiral, in terms of we're in the death knells of uh, the destruction of the school system as we know it. The message that we'd like to get through is one of hope and one of empowerment. And we would really like people that read the book or come across the ideas in the book to be involved in flipping the system uh, with us as a movement. It's striking the parallels between what you're seeing in Australia and what we're seeing in the United States right now and the threats to our democracy and how education plays a role. So I'm going to ask you a big picture question. That's because we haven't got 20 big picture questions yet. Is that it, Mark? Right, right. That's it. Yeah. You know, so I'm going to, I'm going to go even bigger though. Um, I'm going to go the big, biggest question so far. Right? And, and what I want to ask is right now in, in the United States, when we look at what the purpose of education is, the phrase that comes up most often is college and career ready. And I've, I've always argued that that is um, ec an economic purpose, which is, which is only one piece of what we should be doing in schools. What do you see as the purpose for public education in a democracy? That's a huge question. Uh, my first response is going to be to prepare citizens. That's the first response that I can think of, but it's clearly more complicated than that. Um, there's so much involved in terms of, the schooling system, education's responsibility. Always remember that education is different from schooling. Uh, the school system is something that has become more and more designed over the last couple of hundred years. Uh, but education in its true sense, think of Socrates, think of Plato, think of those people hundreds and hundreds of years ago who were dispensing knowledge and asking questions, um, walking along the Agora in the morning at the marketplace. It was about a relationship between people. It's about a connection. To some extent, we might talk about an apprenticeship. Uh, it's about bringing people into the best of the past. And I think sometimes schools do a far too good a job at conserving the past. Um, that's one, one element of it, conserving the past and passing on the best of what we've learned from standing on the shoulders of giants. But then we need to take the next step and look beyond that and be able to do something, particularly in today's age when we talk about words like entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity. And we know of the challenges that we have in terms of climate change and everything else that's coming at us. Students need to be able to see beyond where we've come from and be able to think about where their ideas might go. A central element of all of that is the idea that we're preparing citizens, we're preparing global citizens, people that can not just survive in the current age and the coming age, but thrive in a networked technological age uh, where we have all of these threats to democracy that we've just mentioned and rising authoritarianism and fringe groups being empowered and white supremacy, where we have students who are able to see, to cut through that and really form value-based, ethical, moral decisions that will take humanity uh, through this current morass. What are some success stories that you've seen where teachers have started to take control of their profession, take control of, of what it means to be a professional teacher, 
and have moved the needle in terms of policy and practice? It is important for us to acknowledge that there are huge, huge steps being taken all the way around the globe and that teachers are having incredible, uh, an incredible effect on students and on policy, as you put it, and on politics. Um, it's, it's easy for us to just plug away as teachers and put our head down, but increasingly, I think, as a profession, we're not doing that. Um, our purpose behind this book is that we wanted to ruffle a few feathers, and I think teachers are increasingly becoming good at ruffling feathers. We're understanding the importance of social organising. So in terms of where I'm taking some comfort and some positivity from, it, it isn't the isolated hero teachers, the trope of people who are winning awards and doing fantastic things. Um, and it's important as a profession that we acknowledge those people. But I'm taking great comfort from the fact that increasingly teachers are organising and networking, using technology to connect globally, um, using technology in really appropriate ways to empower and organise our students to see different viewpoints and expose them to different ideas around the globe. And we're also doing that ourselves as a profession in terms of just the fact that you and I are having this conversation and that you've taken the time to ask these questions and record this conversation for what's largely, I assume, an American audience, um, but you're looking for perspectives from outside your country. And I think where technology is enabling these sorts of conversations, but it's a very empowering position to be in. I think unions around the world are gradually becoming aware that while in the past they've had a very, very successful responsibility for coordinating in terms of working conditions. I think unions are increasingly becoming responsible for involving themselves and teachers in conversations about pedagogy, about curriculum, um, about future directions. And I find that really, really exciting and again, empowering as well, uh, that there are organisations and associations doing those sorts of things. I think professional associations in terms of subject associations, I'm a member here in Australia of the State History Teachers Association, which is an incredible group of people who are really, really um, pumped in terms of the possibilities of future education and very professional in terms of how they, they go about organising teachers within our state as well. I think as we increasingly see that those sorts of things uh, we're going to see teachers' voices becoming more and more prominent, more and more to the fore. I love talking about grassroots work in schools. We can consider the problems with professional development in the past where the expert comes in and sits at the front of the school and the entire staff sit there and listen to this so-called expert and then they to go away in their classroom and institute whatever it is they've heard about, big round of applause. I think we're seeing massive changes to the way professional development is done to teachers. Increasingly now, it's learning that's done with teachers. Uh, it's so much more personalised. It's, it's about that collaborative autonomy and collaborative expertise. Um, increasingly, we have challenges. In Australia, we have an organisation called the AITS, or the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership, and there are no representatives from classroom teachers, or in fact, from the union on their board. And that's a point that's raised in, in one of the chapters in our book. And increasingly, organisations and associations aren't allowed to get away with that anymore. Um, there's a, there's a, a cry for grassroots representation, for teachers to be able to have those sorts of contributions and have that sort of empowered voice. As an example, I mean, if you want a specific example, I'm going to take it outside teaching for a moment, but if we look at the voice of Greta Thunberg, the young girl from Sweden, 
uh, who's having such a powerful influence around the world at the moment, not just because of her research and what she says, but because she's such a brilliant speaker um, and having such an influence on, on people's views about climate change. She's able to do that because social media is being used in such a positive way to spread her voice. Uh, and I think if we look beyond the negatives that we see far too readily and look for the positives in terms of uh, what social media, technology, what connection, what networking, what globalization can actually do for us, uh, that's where it becomes really exciting. So our last question for you, Cameron, is something that we ask of all of our guests. We're gonna ask you to do it in only one or two sentences. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? I'm gonna bring it back to the classroom in that I think too much education reform remains top down, imposed on schools. It doesn't draw on or support the development of capacities within the system. I think the strongest influence on teacher practice is advice from colleagues and we get better by working in teams. The most powerful information about teaching and learning in a school is student and teacher work that happens in classrooms. So this building of lateral capacity that I referred to at the beginning is, is absolutely crucial. It's the best alternative to external control. And this is the point of flipping the system. It's about shifting the narrative in terms of what's happening in schools to one of trust and agency, subverting the hierarchies and reforming education from the bottom up. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Cameron Patterson for being our guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk with Tina Schuster from High Tech High about the school's project-based learning approach. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. <laughs>